This is the Democracy in Crisis podcast, and I am Baynard Woods with Democracy in Crisis. And I'm Mark Steiner here at the Center for Emerging Media. We have Aura Bagado, a reporter who just wrote an amazing piece uh, for Teen Vogue. Aura, welcome to Democracy in Crisis. Thanks so much for having me. So just a, a couple of days ago, you had a, an amazing story come out in, in Teen Vogue. And, and the weirdness of even saying that is, is getting to not be weird anymore. The Teen Vogue's doing <laughs> such consistently good work now. It's um, true. It's true. But, but you, I mean, it was a really appropriate story for them because it, it details the story of a 14-year-old girl um, and her mother. Can you tell us a little bit about how, uh, how you reported, tell us the story and, and then how you came to report that? Of course. So um, Guadalupe Garcia is uh, an immigrant that had been living in the United States for quite a long time. She came to the U.S. as a child herself. She was 14. And uh, close to eight years ago, she was caught up in a local immigration raid conducted by then-Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And uh, as a consequence of that, nearly 10 years later, she was deported. So what I did was I profiled her 14-year-old daughter, who is a a really bright, intelligent, and incredibly principled young person who sort of seems to understand more about the issue than a lot of adults, um, probably as a result of living in in a mixed-status family. So I profiled her daughter, Jackie. Uh, It was a few hours after her mom had been deported. Jackie had spent that morning packing her mom's uh, luggage, packing her stuff. And um, we talked while she was in a car driving over to Mexico to see her mom, um, you know, that the, the day she got deported. So uh, I'm just curious, just emotionally, and when talking to them, what it was like beyond the written word talking to these young, these kids whose mom had just been taken away? You know, I was really heartened to find that Jackie was very matter-of-fact about the fact that she she feels and she knows in her heart that her mom is going to come back home to Phoenix. She's not sure exactly how that's going to happen. She doesn't know, um, you know, each and every single law that may or may not apply in this particular situation. Um, but when Jackie was six years old, uh, her her mom was, you know, first arrested by Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And so she, you know, sort of went through half a year as a very little person without her mom around. So her dad and her grandmother really sort of took care of her. She has a brother who's a couple of years older. Of course, he was only eight at the time. But what she remembers about that time was that, yes, it was very difficult during that time. She went to see her mom in, in jail and at the detention center every single Sunday for those six months. And then and then her mom came back. So she really approaches this as uh, it's a legal challenge. There is a challenge and she is up to the task. She doesn't know if it's going to take a few weeks. Maybe it'll take a few years. But she's sort of very matter of fact about it. I think the time when it was a little more difficult for her during the conversation was uh, remembering the night before, which was the Wednesday um, after her her mom, Lupita, had been um, apprehended by ICE. She saw her mom in the deportation van, right? And so she she was telling her that she loved her. She was asking her not to cry. 
So that was a, a little more difficult, I think, for Jackie, you know, sort of recalling that. And also recalling having to pack your mom's bags, right, to take them to now another country um, so that she can sort of figure out her life there uh, in, in the meantime. But, you know, for a 14-year-old to sort of have this much wherewithal and frankly not sort of cry through the whole interview, I thought was was pretty remarkable. It would make sense if she needed sort of a lot of pauses, but, but that wasn't the case. She was just very prepared for, for what was happening and, you know, she, she sounded a lot older than 14 years old. And in some sad ways, I think that that's what this kind of draconian immigration policy and enforcement does, is it makes young people grow up very quickly. It makes them understand immigration law very quickly because, you know, it really affects them. Yeah, there's that amazing line where you talk about how she says that, that if other teenagers see her out there, that they might get inspired to join her about being really outspoken in, in Puente, one of the, the groups who had been working on her mother's case. And, and I thought about how at 14, most people want to hide under the, you know, under the carpet and not be seen at, at all, especially if you've seen your mom taken away and stuff. So, I mean, that, that bit was just was really showed some remarkable character. Yeah, you know, Jackie made a point that she went to her first protest. She decided that she wanted to go when she was about eight years old, to the best of her recollection. That's that's when it was. And she decided she wanted to go. She took some family members with her. They took signs. She remembers seeing the different banners. And there was. she said that there was a big puppet of uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And, you know, she made a really conscious decision at a very young age uh, to sort of fight against this. And, you know, with all of that, when, when you're eight years old, you, your brain is, is still developing. I mean, when you're 14 years old, your brain is still developing. Right. Um, and she, it, it is pretty remarkable how she sort of can see herself from the outside and say, well, if I'm there and if I'm 14 and if I'm dealing with this, I want to use my courage to inspire other people to join me. I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing because I think that a lot of people show up to protest now because they know they feel like it's the right thing to do. And that's amazing. And that's good and important. But to be that young, and to sort of know, like, well, if I show up, other people might be inspired to do so. It's it's amazing. Like I said, she's a she's a pretty amazing young person. I mean, the, the reason this is so important, I think, that you highlight this and I highlight this for young people to read, which I think is critically important. You know, what Joe Arpaio did, which was racially profile and go after folks and make these sweeps of Latino people um, where he had jurisdiction in Arizona, is exactly the kind of policy that Trump is instituting now in this country. Um, we heard reports in this program, you know, like – ICE waiting in courtrooms, ICE waiting at schools, ICE waiting every place else to grab people, stopping people in, in mass, uh, as well as been, is, has been happening, which is fundamentally different than what Obama did, even though there was a heavy critique about Obama's deportations as well. But there's something really – the word popped in my head I guess I shouldn't use is evil. This is something very strange and evil is happening now and I think that's why these stories, these kids telling the story this way is so kind of really deeply important right now. Here's what we know. We do know that Obama deported a record number of people. And like you said, there was a lot of, understandably, justifiably, there was a lot of critique around that. 
the difference right now and also the context of what's happening is radically different than the Obama years. We have somebody as president who campaigned on dehumanizing certain people, immigrants in particular, right. certain kinds of immigrants, right? When when Donald Trump says the illegals or illegal immigrants, when he uses those that term, that slur, he's not referring to immigrants like his wives. That's not who he's talking about. He's specifically talking about Latinos and very specifically about Mexican and uh, Mexican Americans, right? So we have somebody that came into power partially by dehumanizing Mexican Americans and, you know, flatly calling me Mexicans uh, rapists and killers, right? So he comes into power. He then executes this executive order. You have this uh, historic ban that takes uh, takes course, um, you know, on on the side of people who oppose it. takes takes place around you know hundreds of airports all over the country, and then you have these raids that are that are very high profile and that are targeting people that Obama had issued orders to not deport. That's why Lupita had been here for about ten years, despite Joe Arpaio. And despite federal policy, federal immigration policy, and the lack of immigration reform, right? So yes, we need to remember that Obama deported that many people, and in some ways uh, was instrumental in creating some of what's happening now. However, what's happening in this very moment is that you have, uh, you know, a, a president in power who came into power. Um, partially because of his hatred of, of the people that he's deporting. So it is a little bit different. It is a little bit different. It's, it's very different, actually, I would argue. The other people in Jackie's community, I mean, what are you feeling? And even just in, in later reporting, I mean, we had big marches here on Sunday in Baltimore, and there's a lot of nervousness and rumors going around and, and fear, um, but also a lot of resistance. What are you, what are you finding in, in reporting on this issue? That How, how are people responding? Uh, all of the above and then some. Um, there are people who are going into sanctuary, uh, into churches, because churches, uh, you know, sort of remain the only place, at least so far, that federal authorities won't, you know, go in and, and conduct a raid. There are people that are sort of getting out of where they lived and figuring out other other ways to kind of not, try to not deal with ICE at all. Um, there are people that are trying to figure out how to how to be the best allies that they can be um, to people that, you know, are 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 dealing with this right now. Um, there are people that are out in the streets, people who are documented and undocumented. Um, you have a lot of people who are somewhat documented under deferred action, right? A lot of young people under DACA. Um, but I think that there is a lot of fear that shouldn't be underestimated. Um, you know, the way that uh, these raids are carried out in homes, I mean, it's it's very big men coming into homes uh, with AR-15s. Um, they'll do it also outside in plain daylight and, you know, pointing semi-automatic weapons um, to somebody, you know, to a one person that they want to apprehend who doesn't have a weapon or anything at all was just pulled over. So that does elicit a certain kind of fear. And I think it's hard for people to sort of 
understand like what what that exactly means. At the same time, there are a whole bunch of reports that um, either are untrue or haven't been confirmed, right? Um, so there's a lot of confusion. And then at the same time, there are people that like Jackie and like Jackie's family know that these are immoral laws and therefore decide to fight it. Um, however, 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 it makes sense for them. Legal routes, uh, protesting, uh, calling lawmakers, being allies to people, um, supporting with funds, you know, financial resources. So, so there is a lot. There is a lot going on. You know, one of the things that we had a <clears throat> a rally here the other night, um, City of Immigrants that David Simon put together in Baltimore. Um, Steve Earle played. It was a very cool evening. It was a good evening for the most part. It was really exciting. A lot of good speakers. The, the problem I found was we separate things too much. You know, I mean, so it was about the anti-Muslim ban. Basically, basically, that's what they were talking about. And there was one Latina speaker and there was one black speaker. And two things struck me was, A, that we put these things off. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, All of us were out there at the airports and we were saying no to the Muslim ban and, you, you know, that, that we stood in unity around that. And that's why we were there the other night at uh, the synagogue and that same rally that took place there. Um, but, you know, these thousand people being ra- rounded up are mostly Latinos who ICE is going after. And there's also the, the Muslim refugee piece. And then the the one speaker was saying, you know, Dray McKesson was one of the speakers there, and he said, basically was saying, you know, we have to support this, but where were you when we were in the streets talking about Black <laughs> Lives Matter? And we separate these things out, and, and you know, our, well, that's one of our dangers. If we don't figure out how to pull this together, um, we lose. Yeah. In, in some ways, it makes sense um, that people were going to airports. You know, a handful of women decided this is going to be the site of resistance this weekend. Right. And people went to the airports. A lot of people decided to sort of organize their own. And then the, the demonstration at the airport grew completely, you know, past the 15 people that said they were going to go on Facebook, right, and turned massive. People knew where to go. Everyone knows where the closest airport is, where the closest international airport is. So that sort of made sense. I think that with the people, undocumented immigrants who are already here and are being targeted, it's a little bit different. Most people don't know where their closest deportation center is, for example, or a detention center, rather. A lot of people don't know whether their city is actually a sanctuary city or is kind of a sanctuary city how police are or are not helping federal authorities. A lot of people don't know kind of like where the site of resistance might be. Is it only in downtown, right? Can it be in in, in another area? Should it be at your local city council meeting? Um, I think a lot of people are still sort of like just expecting uh, organizers to kind of do that work. And I think that that's, that, that's why we've seen these these big rallies in, um, you know, in, in, in Wisconsin and in California and New York because you have grassroots immigrant rights organizers and activists uh, sort of planning it, and there hasn't been that much of a follow-up on the, on, on the side of allies. But I think if I understand what you're saying correctly, um, I think that a lot of this also has to do with who is allowed humanity and who is allowed sympathy. Um, when, when, we, when we think about refugees, um, and people who uh, 
we're arriving for other reasons, whether to be, you know, students or, or to, to work here um, from the seven majority Muslim countries, we tend to think of them um, with a lot of sympathy. These are people who are a lot of times escaping very real terror. Um, a lot of times they're very good students. A lot of times they're scientists. They're people that we um, even unconsciously might think of uh, people who, who can contribute a lot to society. Whereas the messaging, um, and especially from the Donald Trump camp, but it's not just Donald Trump, um, the messaging around undocumented immigrants is one of criminality in which people's entire being, not just one or two things that they did, but their entire being as, as a person is a little less human um, because they're undocumented, right? And because, uh, and, and, and we also know that, that people of color do come into increased contact with, with law enforcement. And I think that, again, a lot of times, I think that this is done on an unconscious level. Um, there's a certain degree of humanity or a large degree of people's humanity that is denied. Um, the case with Lupita Guadalupe uh, Garcia that we were just, just speaking about, she was a worker, right? She was working. There was a raid. Where she where, where she worked, um, not by uh, not by federal agents, by but by Joe Arpaio, the local sheriff, right, enforcing federal immigration law, um, and she was charged with having a fake social security number. She didn't go and steal someone's entire identity and mess up their credit for the rest of their life. She just made up a social security number that. She essentially was paying into um, um, an almost bankrupt social security system. So in a way, you could say that she was financially directly benefiting the United States. And she was charged uh, with a felony for that and convicted of a felony. And so people I know that people in Arizona in particular were asking, like, well, isn't she a criminal? Didn't she did, like, isn't that wrong? Isn't she a felon? Yes, she's a felon and she's still a human being. And I think that that's where a lot of this kind of gets not necessarily lost, but it's where we put people, the different categories that we put people in, like the good, sad refugee, the the felon mother that she worked and somehow she's illegal. And then, you know, you brought up DeRay. I think that there is this whole issue with Black Lives Matter and 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 where where do black people fit into all of this? Um, and I will say, you know, going back to the Muslim ban even, you know, that did include African countries, but we didn't see sort of black immigrants first and foremost, right? People weren't saying a lot about Somalis, for example. Those aren't the faces that we saw. Those aren't the images that photographers were capturing, right? And so a lot of this is sort of um, I think, as you said earlier, compartmentalize, right? We have this kind of person, we have that kind of person, we have the other kind of person. Guess what? All of those people are being extremely negatively affected um, by uh, by the executive right now, right? By by Donald Trump. And and again, like these are the kinds of policies that he campaigned on, right? And a lot of it has to do with like just making uh, people criminals, right? Just really sort of stripping people of their humanity. And it's easy to just, you know, fall into that and say, well, there's that kind of person and there's that kind of person. And of course, the most sympathetic 
person is the one that's always going to get um, sort of the most uh, care and sympathy. I understand that, but it really is a time to, to think critically, right? He hasn't been in power even a month yet. So we do need to kind of think about um, the fact that human beings are human beings and what they did, whether or not it was criminalized, their humanity doesn't go away just because of that. Thank you so much for coming on and, and talking with us today and, and uh, for the work that you've been doing. It, it's really important to get the stories out there. Thank you so much for having me on, you too. Laura Bogota, always good to talk to you. Okay, have a great rest of your day. Thank Bye-bye. You, you too. Here we go. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Islands. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land is made for you and me. This is the Democracy in Crisis podcast. I'm Baynard Woods with Democracy in Crisis. And I'm Mark Steiner from the Center for Emerging Media. Back with Baynard. So, uh... The other day, we went to David Simon, the creator of The Wire, hosted and Tremay. A, and Tremay, and 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 he's about to have a show about uh, New York City in the '70s and the porn industry come out, <laughs> which quite excited to see. I'm sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I wasn't. I didn't know what porn in the '70s looked like. I think that's you, man. <laughs> I did know. I did know. But anyway, we went to the scene the other night that he put on. Steve Earle played. Uh, music was great. A lot of people were there. Called City of Immigrants, a uh, night of support that took place in a synagogue uh, called Beth Am. And, and right? he also called it Steve Earle's Redneck Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> right, he did. Right, <laughs> I like that. Although Steve Earle <laughs> then pointed out that he had been to Jerusalem and stuff, so uh, I think he was maybe a little upset by the <laughs> by that. But but yeah, I mean, it, it was this really good event where where a wide variety of people came together to. Support and, and it was really all about raising money to raise money for the National Immigration Law Center, the Tahrir Justice Center, International Rescue Committee, and the ACLU. And and so David Simon's production company matched the donations that came in right. through the night. And and the Washington Post was live streaming it, and City Paper and stuff here. So I think that I think they raised over fifty thousand dollars and matched that. But it, it was interesting in the kinds of what they had with people coming up and. In a lot of the cases, telling their own experiences, really right, right. notable people. And, and what we want to do is kind of bring you some of the stories, a little bit of Steve Earle and a bunch of the stories that took place that night when we were there. So, um, you know, we heard – and we'll just – so I, we just let the folks tell their stories. Uh, where do you want to start, Baynard? David Simon tells a, starts with a story about his own family, pictures that he has of members of his family that were never able to escape Europe and, and make it out and were, were killed by the Nazis. And so we, we come in actually a little late on that. So he sets it up by mentioning that part of his, one side of his family were killed in Auschwitz and the other side in a forest, I think outside of Bucharest. Right. In the lost branches of my tree, Esther and Solomon and Fanchi and Gidel and Leo and little Bacha and others, ordinary mothers and fathers and children who an entire world failed to see as completely and irreplaceably human. They, too, were a feared and unwanted wave of chaos and risk, confusion, and otherness. And they were butchered on the short end of someone else's geopolitical equation. Knowing that much, you know, I can't watch the television set, and I can't think of these faces and then succumb to the worst imaginings of our president or those who would support all this manipulated fear. 
It would be an affront to the memory of my tribal dead and to the fortunate journey, too, of all those in my mother and father's family who made it here, who got out, who went to Palestine or Australia or the United States. This now is exactly the same moment with exactly the same stakes. Soon and forever, many more families will have nothing left but names and photographs over which to grieve, just as the names and images of others, today's Tafts and Coglins and Lindberghs, and all the others who 80 years ago gave birth to that selfish cry of America first, they're going to be stained and dishonored by what they say or do in this time. These are men and women who wish to claim the mantle of moral leadership, yet they trade innocent lives for any and all chance for an abject and equivocal safety, or worse, for some immediate political gain. Tether yourself to their ugly fears, and you too can embrace this shame that this moment offers. Or we can be more. David Simon, and now we're going to hear from Marilena Hinakape, who is executive director of the National Immigration Law Center with her own personal story. My name is Marielena Hinakape. I'm an immigrant from Colombia, and I'm the daughter of factory textile workers, Arturo and Teresa, who are no longer with us. But my parents made immense personal sacrifices to come to this country so that my nine brothers and sisters and I would have the same opportunities that previous generations of immigrants have had. In fact, probably like many of you and many previous generations of your families. I have the great privilege of leading the National Immigration Law Center, an organization that is dedicated to working at the intersection of race, citizenship status, class, and gender, so that everyone can fulfill their full potential. Our team has been working around the clock since the elections, fighting back against anti-immigrant and anti-refugee policies that violate our values as Americans and our Constitution. We at the National Immigration Law Center are also working on the first executive order, which we just started seeing last week with the immigration raids across the country. That has now started taking effect. That would result in the mass deportation and criminalization of the 11 million undocumented immigrants who aspire to be Americans and citizens. We are also deeply concerned about one of the draft executive orders that has been leaked, which would result and pave the way for the deportation of lawful permanent residents who have fallen on hard times, who are needing safety net programs like my family, like I needed when I was growing up in a working class family. Finally, we're fighting to ensure that we can protect dreamers, those dreamers who have temporary protection from deportation under the Obama administration, 750,000 who voluntarily came forward and gave the federal government their information so that they could contribute to their families. Those dreamers, the DACA program, we are ready to sue if they decide to mess with dreamers. DeRay McKesson tells an interesting story and, and talks about the apocalypse, the productive apocalypse that some people hoped for. And, and DeRay is, is well known for his role in the Black Lives Matter movement, and so we hear him talk about that. I've been thinking lately about how we reconcile the rhetoric of the promise of America with the reality of the promise of America. How will we make sure that the way we talk about freedom actually matches the way that people experience freedom? When I think about protests, I think about protests as the idea of telling the truth in public, that we stood in streets, that we use our bodies to tell the truth, that Mike should be alive and Rakia and Ayana and so many people, that we disrupted board meetings and commissions to tell the truth that they weren't using their institutional power in ways that benefited the lives of people of color. 
I think about all of those brave people who stood in airports and stood in streets in the past couple weeks as people who are putting their bodies on the line to tell the truth that this was not the America that they know, not the America that they know can be real. I'm mindful that resistance is as much a mindset as it is a set of actions, that resistance is your refusal to allow lies to spread, that resistance is your ability to tell the truth in every situation that you show up in, that it's also holding other people accountable for the stories they tell about the lives that you live and that the lives of people who live that are like you. And that resistance is also about pushing systems and structures to be the best that they possibly can be. I'm also mindful that we aren't born woke, that something wakes us up. That there were so many people who was a tweet or a Facebook post or Instagram post that was a thing that got them to see what the world could be. And I say that because the truth-telling act is one of the most radical things that we can do. People ask me all the time, what can I do? And the beginning is always tell the truth. And you'd be shocked at how hard that is, that I know that some of the hardest truth-telling conversations happen at dinner tables, happen in the backseat of cars, happen in classrooms, and that is where we need people to show up the most because we know that the way people think about the world changes the way that they act in the world. That the beginning of the work is always with telling the truth, whether you tell the truth with your mouth or with your body. Now, when I think about what is at stake here, it is everything. That there were people who were seduced by this notion of a productive apocalypse with this current president. That they were like, let us see everything come crashing to a halt, and in this crash, we will finally have to confront the ills of this America. And what we know to be true is that the only thing that happens in the productive apocalypse is the apocalypse part. <laughs> that the system does come grinding to a halt, and in the process, it grinds us to ashes. And in these moments, fighting back means that we have to remember that we have power, that we have to remember the truth-telling act is one of the most radical things that we can do, and we know that the beginning of action is always information. I'm excited to think about this question of can we make this country live up to its promise? Can we reconcile the rhetoric of America's freedom with the reality that people live? We all have work to do. Thank you. And we listened to Dr. Le- uh, Lena Wen, who is a health commissioner here in Baltimore City, where we broadcast from, with a very moving story about her immigrant story from Shanghai to Utah to more. I was born in Shanghai, China. My parents were political dissidents. My father was in prison for most of my childhood. After the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, my mother was allowed to come to the U.S. My father and I followed just before my eighth birthday. Our plane ride together was the first time I got to know him. We ended up settling in a little town in the mountains of Utah, quite a change from Shanghai, a city of 25 million people. And like so many other immigrants, my parents may do, and they worked very hard. My mother cleaned hotel rooms and worked in a video store. My father delivered newspapers and he washed dishes in a restaurant. It was a different life than the one that we knew. We had no connection to our family in China, including my grandparents who raised me. We struggled to make rent every month, and twice in one year, we were evicted. The first time, we stayed in a shelter. The second time, a stranger offered us her home. She was a single mother struggling to raise six children by herself. She didn't even know our names. We looked different from everyone else. We spoke a different language. 
and we had a different religion. But she told us that it was her duty to help those who needed help. This is America, she told us. My home is your home. Other neighbors invited us around for meals. Members of the church lent us coats and blankets in the harsh winters. Life was hard, but every day we were so grateful to be alive. My mother would go on to attend night school and community college. And until her death from cancer several years ago, she taught elementary school in Los Angeles. My father would become active in our church, helping other refugee families the way that so many helped us. My little sister, who was born in the US, is now a teacher herself after serving two years in the Peace Corps. And I'm so proud to be here as an American, as a doctor, to serve Baltimore and our residents. Now, this is my story. And in some ways, my story is unique but it's also the story of so many immigrants who landed in America and now call this country our home. This is the story of multitudes of students and professionals who came to improve their skills and contribute their experiences. This is the story of millions of families like ours coming to escape terrorism and trauma who seek refuge on our shores. A couple of months ago, I treated a patient a woman in her 40s. She's an undocumented immigrant with children born here in our city. She was shaking when I saw her. She knew that she needed insulin for her diabetes and inhalers for her asthma, but she almost didn't come in that day to clinic because she feared being deported and taken away from everyone that she loves. Everywhere that I go, whether it's in clinic at my workplace, at the health department, around our neighborhoods, I meet women, men, and children who are terrified for their futures. Many of us are first-generation immigrants. Others are just one or two generations away. We must speak about how we have the privilege of the lives we lead because of the sacrifice of those before us and how they have that privilege because they were allowed to choose America as our home. Now, this is not a them, the immigrants, versus us, the Americans. They are us and our parents and our grandparents. Tell our stories as a reminder of our common humanity. And Taylor Branch, the, the you know, eminent historian uh, who uh, has been working with Simon on trying to bring his three-volume massive opus uh, biography of, of Martin Luther King, the King era trilogy. into a show. Yeah, the King Era Trilogy. Um, he told this amazing story about his own father in the 50s flying to Korea to bring a baby back illegally, who is, is uh, Taylor's sister now. The issue that brings us here has deep roots in American history. Our heritage is compromised by embarrassment and, and disgrace regarding immigrants. But also, as with slavery, it contains profound inspiration with tools for freedom. In 1790, America's first naturalization law required an aspiring immigrant to be a free white person. For nearly two centuries afterward, our leading intellectuals helped nativists 
secure the white person's standard within a pseudo-scientific hierarchy of races, always with white people on top. In the late 19th century, Hopkins professor Robert Bean weighed brains, seeking to prove that the white ones were heavier and therefore smarter. John Fisk at Harvard analyzed wrinkles in brain lobes, and phrenologists measured the angles of foreheads and jawbones. Anthropologists cataloged up to 34 distinct shades of skin color. The founders of sociology, psychology, and many other social sciences joined naturalists to make eugenics a centerpiece of progressive movements to improve mankind by making foreigners more like themselves. In 1907, Congress raised the stakes of whiteness by mandating that any American woman who married a non-white immigrant would be stripped of her own citizenship without trial. Such exclusions persisted in spite of contradiction. Definitions floundered over basic categories, let alone details. Eminent social scientists counted variously 3, 5, 11, 16, on up to 63 distinct races. Nevertheless, race-based restrictions choked off immigration and refugees from most of the world until well after World War II. Here I can speak personally. My sister, Cherry, is a Korean war orphan who has lived her whole life without knowing any Asian peers or peer families. She was abandoned among other starving infants in 1954 when there were no immigration slots for Asians, and a lawyer advised my parents that authorities in Georgia never would approve refugee status for a non-white baby from an orphanage near the border of communist North Korea. However, the same lawyer confided that outside the law, those same cowardly authorities probably would not seize and deport an actual baby who arrived without papers. So my father, the dry cleaner, flew to Korea on slow airplanes with propellers. Sure enough, desperate nurses at the orphanage agreed to release Cherry, but only if my father also agreed to take, meaning technically kidnap, a second malnourished baby with him to an adopting family in California. Now, for us, this is a blessed, hopeful story. Cherry usually hosts our sibling reunions, but she has no exposure to Asian culture. That's a gross understatement. We didn't even have Italians in Atlanta. I think the first pizza restaurant opened when I was in high school. We grew up among homogeneous white Protestants segregated from black people. From my own work in civil rights history, I urge you to recognize that the black-led freedom movement of the 1960s provided sacrificial leadership and political genius to open our immigration laws to the world. And then we had another story from a lawyer who works for the ACLU of Maryland, one of their lead attorneys, Sonia Kumar. Her father was Indian, is Indian, her mother was Iranian, uh, and it's their really moving immigrant story. I'm not just here as an ACLU lawyer. I'm also here as an Iranian, born in Iran, one of the seven countries targeted by the executive order. I don't usually talk about this. My mother's Iranian, and she came to this country decades ago, where she married my father, who's also an immigrant, but from India. 
They are the reason I am a civil rights lawyer. And although I've lived here my whole life, and I'm a US citizen, I and countless others with deep ties to this country have been harmed by the executive order that claims to protect us from terrorists. We're not terrorists. Our families are not terrorists. And this order hasn't just harmed people overseas. It's also harmed those of us who are here, who have long been here and whose loved ones can't come visit, or who we're afraid will be detained and labeled as terrorists if they try. Maybe most of all, the executive order has undermined our sense of security and belonging, not just because of what it does, but because of the ignorance and hate that motivated it. Because even if the courts reject this particular order, that hate and ignorance is still here to motivate the next awful idea. It's hard enough to live apart from the people whom we love. This is something that any, any immigrant, any child of immigrants, or anyone whose family is really far away knows. But there's a special kind of anguish when we're caught in the middle of fear-mongering and posturing of national governments that serves no legitimate purpose. This order is just that. It is blind fear-mongering and posturing that hurts real people and makes us all less safe. And that's why gatherings like this are so, so incredibly important. Thanks to the courts and the outcry and forums just like this happening across the country, we are less scared. And, you know, we all know we have more to do, and there's going to be a lot more, and it's going to be overwhelming. It's already overwhelming. But we must stay energized and resist the new normal, even when it starts feeling like old news. So, you know, a couple of years back I was in, Steve Earle talked about City of Immigrants being New York. He lives in Greenwich Village. And I was there in the park in Washington Square Park talking to my wife, and we were talking about Woody Guthrie. And I said, uh, who, who would Woody Guthrie be now? And there comes walking up <laughs> Steve Earle. And, and so he sang Woody Guthrie. Uh, he started out with when he first came out and sang and had the whole crowd sing along, This Land is Your Land. And we're going to go out now with the song that the whole thing was named after, City of Immigrants. And you are? I'm Baynard Woods with Democracy in Crisis. And I'm Mark Steiner, his buddy here from Center for Emerging Media. Democracy in Crisis is engineered and edited and produced by Mark Gunnery and is supported by a number of alternative weekly papers um, throughout the country and the Center for Emerging Media. Never sleep, heart keep the time to the-